I'll have what she's having. Welcome to Our Better Half, a podcast about sex in the second half of life. I'm Laura Listermensch. This is episode 24, and today is July 3rd, 2016. Our guest will be Gail Gates from Aging Schmaging. It's July 4th weekend, Independence Day in the U.S. And on that theme, I want to tell you a little story. It's not about politics. It may not even seem like it's about the topic of this podcast, but stay with me for a moment and you'll see why I'm telling you this. So I was born of parents who were born in two different races. Their birth certificate stated, without controversy, Negro and Caucasian. It was the 30s and the 40s, and that's the way it was done. The terms have changed over time, but the meaning persists. The meaning was that these two human beings are one or the other thing, and that being one of these races means something. Their children got a designation, too, based on parental background. In the 60s, when I was born, it was tradition and expected that the children of a Caucasian and a Negro would assume the designation of the darker one. Again, that was the way it was done. As if one was an ink that besmirched the lack of color, literally, of the other. The Caucasian thing was just so empty and pure that it is pushed out by any amount of Negro. Of course, all of this was and is nonsense. There is no such thing as race or color. The truth is that there is no such quality and Biologically, we all just exist on this continuum of shared and varied genes, some for melanin, some for skin color, others for cholesterol metabolism, and whether your pee gets a distinctive smell if you eat asparagus, mine does. The idea that you could divide humans out by skin color in a one or the other binary way has always been ridiculous, but has still been deadly serious and not often enough questioned even now. My biological parents were considered so very biologically different that they were not even legally able to marry in some states at that time. And yet, it's only recently that I have been able to fill out a legal form without choosing affiliation with my mother or my father about a thing that is a social construct, as if I was being asked about a biological fact. I just this past year had an argument with an official who told me that I couldn't volunteer at my kid's school unless I chose a race, a single race, when I was fingerprinted for a background check. Eventually, everyone will see how silly and absurd that is. I thought about this issue when I heard about the person in Oregon who fought for the right to be neither gender on their driver's license. In this fight, I see the idea of gender of a binary one or the other gender fall apart under the same lack of logic that not only made me choose a race, but really, really believed it mattered. And for those who see the end of civilization in these new pronouns and bathrooms and dress codes, I want to unreassure you. You're right. This will be the end of lining up boy-girl and grouping ourselves by gender. It will, I predict, no longer be expected that we see in someone's clothing or hair or toilet use what shape their genitalia takes and what chromosomes they carry. 
We aren't going to say, it's a boy, at birth, as if that was the most important thing to know about that new human, nor are we going to have to choose a bathroom everywhere we go and choose a clothing department in every form we fill out. We're going to stop grouping people by gender on every little thing. Not because people will make us, but because we will see the rigid one or the other gender roles as meaningless and silly and all too often cruel. We'll let people be people, attracted to and loving other people, wearing people clothes and using people toilets, doing people things. And of course, they always have. But without the labels and the judgment and the secrecy and the justified fear. And you know what? It's going to be okay. I am not a race. The driver in Oregon is not a gender. These ideas can be uncomfortable at first, but don't worry. We'll get used to it. I don't know about you, but in all of my half a century plus half a decade of life, I hadn't ever gone into a store that trafficked in sex toys. It wasn't that I was against it. I was just kind of busy doing other things and hadn't thought to seek one out. And honestly, that sort of store had always been advertised as and had the outward appearance of something distinctly sleazy and not all that female friendly. I didn't feel shut out, nor would I have been scared to do it, but I didn't have any particular curiosity. And as with any other good prude, I wasn't attracted to anything that might be unsavory. It was only with researching this project, this podcast, and throwing myself into the world of sex and sex positivity that I realized that these are not your icky uncle's sex shops anymore. Those still exist, of course, but there are more and more stores that are selling sex stuff in a way that is friendly, not furtive, educational, not shaming, and female-friendly. There's a trend towards spaces and events that seek to improve people's sex lives, not because there was anything wrong that needed fixing, but also to enhance and enrich. But is this just for young people? What about those in our second half of life? Is it like going back to school or like sitting around with friends? Is it dry and clinical or giggly and lewd? I thought I'd talk to someone with experience with holding empowering events, Gail Gates. Gail is on a mission to empower women in the second half of life through her art events and her blog, Aging Schmaging. And Gail recently went to her first women's gathering at a sex toy shop an event specifically for older women. Let's hear how that went. Hello, Gail. How are you today? I am amazing. Thank you. It's so great to talk to you, Laura. I love the name of your website, Aging Schmaging. How did you come up with that name? I was trying to find a name that fit into the attitude that I was feeling as I put my landing gear down for the second half of life. Mm. And uh, you know what? Aging, aging, smaging. I love it. It's stuck. So thank you. It, it's great. And I, I share your attitude about aging. <laughs> when you were a kid, what did you think you'd do when you grew up? I had illusions of grandeur. I thought I would stand up on the hay wagon and sing. I was sure I was going to be a performer <gasps> of some sort. Oh, then as I got a little bit older, then I thought, no, I'm going to own a horse ranch out west somewhere. And uh, and then and then, then I got married, and, and all those things changed, and I became a dental assistant. Oh, how wonderful. 
Well, <laughs> it was quite a drift from where I originally thought I was going. Well, we should all have our day on the back of the hay wagon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you now? I am 58. Mm-hmm. How are you enjoying your 50s? I love it. I was just reading in our local paper, uh, it's a woman who wanted to smash her face in a cake like one-year-olds do. Oh. Yeah. And she was turning 40, and her words were something to the effect that every woman fears turning 40. And I thought, not this one. I loved turning 40. It was one of my best years ever, and it's only continued on. I feel the same way. I always wanted to be 40. At 50 is great, too. It it absolutely is. I think um, this whole aging thing has been pretty amazing. Oh, I love to hear that. So uh, in addition to your website and your blog and this work, uh, you hold something you call play shops, which I think other people might call workshops. Why did you choose that name? Well, I feel the word work um, is a connotation for something that you kind of have to do and not want to do necessarily. Mm. And so I thought, particularly since I believe in the creativity of women and more so in the second half of life, I wanted this to be a time for them to come and play. And so what we do is I talk a little bit about midlife and where they're at and are they where they want to be? And if not, why not? And then I turn them loose on some silk scarves and they can paint them however they want to take home and let their creativity um, hold court for an afternoon. It sounds really lovely. Um, I believe the the sessions are, you know, a couple of hours long and mm-hmm. uh, it's only women or sometimes men. I have had two men. Um, yes, two men. And the one gentleman wanted to make some scarves for his nieces, who he loves and adores and thought they would enjoy it. And the other gentleman has been my husband, and he just likes to get involved with whatever I'm doing. So he made scarves with little fish on them. (laughs) Oh, it's lovely. It is, it is. Um, But mostly they are women, because I want the women to have this conversation about how wonderful life in the second half can be. So you've been doing this for how long? Uh, A year and a half. What's the one person who's come to one of your play shops uh, who had the most transformative experience? The interesting thing is when I do the PowerPoint part of it and I ask questions, it's usually really quiet. And then it's during the time where they're paying their scribes, they'll kind of come up to me one-on-one. And there was one named Sherry. She came to me and said, your story really hit me because I am at that place right now where I'm feeling very, very restless. And I know that what I'm doing as far as my career is not going to fulfill me going forward. And I just don't know what to do with it. And so we had a great conversation. And it's not like I have the answers, but I'm hoping I can get them to be thinking about the questions and and why they are feeling this restlessness and what they can do with it then. Mm -hmm. And um, she was very grateful and said that she was going to be starting to look into what she really wanted to be doing instead of what she was doing. So that creativity element, you are a photographer, you, you do this creative work. What's the connection between the aging and the creativity? There's been a lot of studies on that. And uh, Dr. Northrup, who I enjoy reading, 
She has this theory that you kind of get into this hormonal veil when you go through um, puberty, mm-hmm. and that steers you for childbirth. Now, whether you want to have children or not, your hormones are kind of in place for that. Then when you hit menopause, those hormones shift again, and that veil kind of lifts. So if you have girlfriends who all of a sudden are getting uh, a little more adventurous or maybe they're saying things with less of a filter, that's all part of that hormonal veil lifting. And one of those pieces is creativity. So some of the things we loved to do when we were a child all of a sudden becomes much more compelling in midlife, and we want to revisit that because that was associated with a lot of joy in our life. So I'm encouraging that. Let's let's do more joy. Let's do more joy. I like that a lot. And I am seeing that also in my ladies my age and above. Just just a quickie. I'm curious what you did when you were a child, and are you revisiting that? <laughs> oh, man. Um, no one's asked that. I wanted to be a writer, and yeah. that is what I ended up doing. And it, it feels like a childhood dream come true. <laughs> there you go. I didn't know about podcasting because it didn't exist, but I probably would have dreamt of that. <laughs> and you rock it, my friend. You rock it. <laughs> Thank you. So the reason why I have called you here today, Gail, is uh, we're, we, are, we know each other on social media, but um, I know that you recently went to an event at the Smitten Kitten, which is a they call themselves a progressive sex toy store in Minneapolis. Yes. yes. Was it your first event there? Yes, it was. And it was so much fun. <laughs> it was a women's gathering. Tell me how many people were there and what goes on. Okay. There's a group in Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, they're called Aging But Dangerous. And they are very much about women in the second half of life getting their dangerous joy on. And so they hold these gatherings, and this particular one was all about sex and what kind of questions you might have at this age of life. So the Smitten Kitten is not a huge shop, but we crammed at least 40 women in there. Mm. And the staff was on hand, and there was wine involved, so that was all good. (laughs) Um, And I was joking because... They kept adding chairs, and pretty soon I'm crammed up against the shelf of um, cock rings. <laughs> A lovely assortment of rainbow colors. And I don't know that that matters in the moment, but they were available. And I was just blown away with by not only how calm and caring the staff was, but the women, they were so open with the questions they had and that willingness to share in a group of kind of sort of strangers was pretty amazing. Was it a question and answer? Was there an expert there or was it just um, kind of a everyone got to speak? How they had it organized was the founder spoke a little bit of Aging the Dangerous, Jean Ketchum, and then they had a doctor from one of the regional hospitals who was I think she's a gynecologist, and so she knows all about women's uh, questions. And then the staff kind of ended the program. So if you weren't comfortable asking the question out loud, you could just 
discreetly send a note up. <laughs> but most of the women were feeling really comfortable by then. And it was a wonderful discussion about, you know, everything from dry vaginas to uh, what's what's the best vibrator going, you know, based on personal experience. Did you have the sense that there were a lot of people there for the first time for such a conversation? Was there, you know, discomfort or giggling? I was right in the front row. Um, I heard very little giggling unless it was meant to be a giggling sort of response. But I'm guessing that many of the women were there for the first time, which says a lot, too, because maybe they have no other place to get these questions answered that they have. Were they all older women? And how old? Everyone there, oh, I was going to say everyone. I guess that's not true. There was a couple that came with like an aunt or a mom. But the majority were probably 50 plus. And some of them maybe up into 80. One of the things that really interests me, and I love to talk to people about is how do older people talk about sex in a direct and open way uh, when some of us have discomfort with certain explicit language? Is it Was it explicit? It depended on the woman. Um, I know one of the questions came up was, is it okay to masturbate by rubbing my thighs together? So that was kind of um, very plain. Mm-hmm. But other women wanted to know more specific things as far as the toys and what they could do and how do you use them for the most pleasure and and so on. So I, I totally understand your question, especially culturally um, and your background that this feels somehow wrong to be asking these questions. There's the wrong to talk about the topic, and then there's the kind of language that we use. Um, some people use euphemisms for their body parts. Uh, some yes. people are very uncomfortable with uh, certain curse words that are often yes. used around sex. So what was the, how blue was the conversation? You know, it really wasn't uh, that blue. And on the other hand, if someone did say something more uh you know, cunt or something. I didn't hear a collective gasp. It was just really accepted mm. that everyone's kind of in a different place and how they choose to express themselves was all inclusive. And I'm not even sure. I'm sure there's different sexual preferences that were represented that night and nobody batted an eye. And the only reason I mention that is, again, because of the age group. I think we were culturally kind of conditioned to behave a certain way. And now there's more of a freedom to just say, this is what I want. This is what I'm doing. And how do you, how can I, how can the rest of you help me out? Mm-hmm. How did you feel going personally? Did it challenge you or is this, do you do this sort of thing all the time? <laughs> um, I don't know. What have you heard? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, You know, it's interesting. I grew up in a very conservative German Lutheran community, farm community. And it was always wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Nobody talked about it. But my mom and dad were pretty playful. 
And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought until I got older and I saw that other people just didn't talk about it. So for me to go to the Smitten Kitten was with eyes wide open and I was really looking forward to the experience because I wanted to know how other women who are my target audience as far as the play shops and so on, how are they talking about this? Because it's hugely important to say, to stay sexually active throughout your life because mm-hmm. that's such an, an important part of our being. So I, I enjoyed every second of it and had a good laugh and um, just seeing the women handle the dildos and the jiggly things and kind of that bafflement, like you stick this where and mm-hmm. what? This is fun. I, I'm wondering, would you recommend that people go to these types of events because they are, they do exist in lots of places now, especially for women. And what kind of person would benefit from this kind of event? First of all, I would totally recommend it. And particularly in a place like the Smitten Kitten who dedicates themselves to education and fearless question asking, that's such a safe place for someone who's maybe shy or maybe who has questions about trying something they've never tried before, or maybe they're in a long-term marriage and things aren't cooking in the bedroom anymore. And, um, or maybe physically we change, we, our joints aren't as comfortable or like I mentioned earlier, maybe there's vaginal dryness or maybe your husband is not um, able to sustain an erection anymore. That's a perfect place to go and get some advice and some toys and things I know the Smitten Kitten has a lending library, so you can get books, and you can get films, and you can just ask anything safely. I think that's important. There are shops, um, similar shops in a lot of cities now with an educational component. And I've often wondered what would make someone feel more comfortable doing that and less comfortable. What advice do you have for someone who might feel uncomfortable? Should they bring a friend? Should they bring their mother? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Um, I would definitely, oh gosh, it depends on the person because I was totally fine going in by myself. Now there was supposed to be another one that's gotten postponed. That was a couple's night at the Smitten Kitten so that husbands and wives or partners, whatever, could ask questions together. And I think that would be a great opportunity too. I know that when I arrived at the Smitten Kitten, I got there a little bit early and there was a lot of customers coming in and they were having just informative one-on-ones with the staff. So depending on the person, I would say either go in and just kind of feel how you feel in that space. If you're uncomfortable, maybe it's not the right time for you. If you're uncomfortable and you want to bring a friend that you trust, hey, perfect. How did your husband feel about your going? He was a little, uh, let's say, cautious. And he was definitely formulating a plan B. Like if the the ladies were asking such graphic questions, he was going to be blushing that he was going to go across the street and have a beer or something. 
But he was all on board, and I think he is going to be on board when they uh, reschedule it. So we have a very open relationship as far as talking and playing and, and enjoying that aspect of our lives. So we were all good. That's wonderful. Well, I'm. thank you for sharing this experience and your recommendation for people. Uh, and I will, of course, in the show notes, put links to your blog and also to the smitten kitten and uh, to Dr. Northrup, who you mentioned. Anything else that you would recommend that people check out? Uh, the Aging But Dangerous website is full of information, and it's really geared towards women in the second half. Uh, no topic is off limits, so I would recommend them as well. Good. Okay. And checking in with your show, because I love what you're doing, Laura. Keep doing it. Thank you so much. Well, have a lovely day. You too. It's time for our Kegel exercise break. The neat thing is you can do these anywhere. You can squeeze and relax those pelvic floor muscles without anyone knowing. Wherever you are right now. Look around at the people around you and secretly squeeze and release. Squeeze and release. You're keeping things healthy and vital for urinary sexual health. Come on, keep a straight face now. Squeeze, release. Squeeze, release. One more time. Very good. Well done. And now, our youth translator, Marina Maklos, will explain that to a grandma. Bedgasm. What's that? Hey, Grandma. So, a bedgasm actually doesn't have to do with sex at all. It is a term for the enjoyment that someone can get out of getting into their bed after a really long day or a really long hike. Just that feeling of getting into your sheets has been likened to that you could get from an orgasm. Talk to you later. It is time to welcome our correspondent for Sexy Science, Dr. Rosalind Vaculum. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me back. What would you like to talk to us about? Well, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever wondered how Kermit got it on with Miss Katie. <laughs> don't worry, I hadn't either, but apparently some scientists had been wondering that very question. Now, among herpetologists, which people who study amphibians like frogs and snakes and other critters like that, herpetologists have known about six different mating positions that frogs use. All the different ways that these thousands and thousands of different frogs mate are basically variations on this theme, and they use one of these six positions. However, scientists at the University of Delhi in India were studying the Bombay night frog. And as you would expect, it is active at night. Um, and they were looking at this frog because it does a whole bunch of, of really weird, unusual things. So they were thinking, oh, well, maybe it, it does some pretty weird mating stuff, too. And they were right. 
because as they were filming this frog mating, they found that, in fact, it uses a brand new sex position, which they call the dorsal straddle. (laughs) And instead of giving the female a really special hug, the male grabs on to the branch or uh, the, the grass or the leaf or whatever Mrs. Kermit is, is perched on. He's still on her back, but he, he grabs onto the leaf for the twig instead of her. And he releases his sperm onto her back. And then he leaves. It, it's actually not a really bad date. Um, it pretty standard in the frog world. This is this is normal. And then as the sperm drips down her back, she releases her eggs. Oh my and you would think this would be a pretty ineffective way to fertilize your eggs. I mean, you're basically betting on gravity and drip, drip down your warty little back. But it works wonderfully. When the researchers tested it, they found that 100% of the eggs got fertilized. So they wrote up their new position and called it the dorsal straddle. And you could try it on the dance floor. I wouldn't recommend it. Definitely get permission and consent, guys, before you try doing this on a woman. Um, (laughs) Most girls would probably not be into it. I don't know that I would want anyone, you know, jerking off on my back. But, you know, if that's your thing, hey, by all means, go for it and call it the dorsal straddle. And now we have significantly expanded the Kermit Sutra. (laughs) Well, you know, it it sounds a little bit like this is a frog sex toy. They're using something else instead of just their bodies. Maybe this could be a thing. Yeah, I don't know. They may have learned it on the frog equivalent of of a porn site. Frog tube. Uh, It does sound like a dance, but uh, are there pictures of this? Yes, there, there are definitely pictures. It involves a series of steps. So in that case, it is very much like a dance. <laughs> Those frogs. I know. Well, thank you very much. You are most welcome. In case you missed it, here's some news from the world of sex through my prude goggles. We've all thought a lot about the actor Charlie Sheen's penis, haven't we? Far more than any of us wanted, I am sure. The actor has been much in the news for his sex life, his relationships, and more recently, his HIV status. So it isn't shocking that Sheen should be asked to be the spokesperson for a new brand of condom, surely. But... (laughs) Here's another way to look at it, pointed out by a growing number of sexual health advocates. Why would an admitted domestic violence offender, one who knowingly exposed unknowing partners to HIV, be the face of a condom brand? Is he a cautionary tale? Is he a role model for changed behavior? Or just a really big name whose infamy will raise the profile of the brand? I guess we're beyond the days of thinking that a spokesperson needs to be a positive role model, but if partner violence and willful exposure to communicable disease is not a deal killer for endorsing a health product, it sure ain't sexy. You have probably heard that sexually transmitted infections are on the rise in older folks. 
A paper in the British Journal of Nursing took a look at why that might be, and surprise, old people, you need condoms. As a great website name says it so well, age is not a condom. Yes, it's awkward to go out and buy them. So take advantage of modern technology and buy them online. And if you have been out of the game of needing STI protection, you can order a sample pack with different sizes and textures and features from Lucky Bloke, for which there is a link on the OurBetterHalf.net website, which gives a tiny bit of support to this podcast when you use it. And don't worry, Our Better Half won't know who you are or what you bought. Did you know that sports organizations, including the Olympic Committee, certify people's gender and that a number of athletes don't sort out neatly into the female-male flowchart. There are hormone, genital, chromosomal, and even pubic hair pattern examinations given to female athletes that would boggle your mind resulting in a gender certificate. I have a picture of one of these on the website. And this is not new. It dates to the 1930s, nor is it rarely invoked in disqualifying athletes. The stated purpose of such testing is fairness, but the whole exercise reveals not only the mirage of binary gender, but puts an interesting view to the doping issue as well. A losing battle, clearly, in the pursuit of pure sport. There are many insights to the survey of 2,000 U.S. and European people centering on their fears around a first sexual encounter. Men and women were polled on their anxieties, and, no surprise, the fears were different on either side of the gender divide. And yes, I've just been going on and on about gender not being binary, but that is how this study was designed. I can't speak for the science integrity of the study, especially as it was conducted by Superdrug Online Doctor website, but there was this poignant observation on the female orgasm that it was one of men's top fears that they would not satisfy the woman, but it didn't even appear on the list of women's fears. What interested me most is this. The fears of both men and women were really all about an eagerness to please, not to be pleased. Beyond infections and pregnancy, what everyone wants to do, it seems, is be a good lover, to be seen in a positive light, and that's kind of sweet. How long does he last in bed is a terrible phrase. One, it implies there's a right amount, and it implies that the old in and out is sex, and the only part that counts as sex to both he's and she's, which isn't true. So with that in mind, The statistic recently given in the Journal of Sexual Medicine that the average time of bedded hokey-pokey is six minutes needs to be rethought via an anecdote attributed to President Lincoln. The lanky politician was often asked how tall he was. His answer was that he was just tall enough to reach the ground. Apply that to how long two people enjoy their intimate moments, and you'll get my point. I don't know if everyone wants to wait that long, but there's news that within two years, there will be a reversible male birth control out there. No hormones, no remembering pills, and nothing standing or rubbing between partners. It involves a one-time injection, can be reversed in a single visit, and it lasts a year. Sounds like a game changer, but so far the happily and non-fertilely sexy times have been by baboons and rabbits, so we'll wait for the humans. Thank you for being with us this week. 
We'll be taking a week off for business and pleasure travel and to get ready for the launch of another podcast series that I hope you will also enjoy, old people. Post-dated podcast will feature letters to be delivered after you've gone to your great reward, details to follow. So your homework, orgasms, old people, have some nice orgasms this week. Hey, this is Dan Savage from the Savage Lovecast and Savage Love, and you're listening to a Swing Set podcast at Swing Set FM. 